Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we are joined by Mandel Crawley, the Chief Human Resources Officer at Morgan Stanley and a member of the firm's operating committee. Mandel began his career at Morgan Stanley and has been with the firm for 30 years. Prior to his role as CHRO, he served as the head of private wealth management, as the chief marketing officer, and held a variety of roles in sales, trading, and business development. Throughout his time at Morgan Stanley, Mandel has led the organization across revenue and asset growth, fielded leadership talent, and spearheaded the creation of a more equitable culture. We discussed many topics today, including Mandel's unique story of entering and rising the ranks at one of the top investment banks in the world, the role capital and capitalism plays in driving societal change, the ESG movement, and the importance of diversity and inclusion in the industry. Mandel was a really fun and incredibly insightful guest, and the conversation was amazing. All thanks to him, of course. Our team really does hope you enjoy it and find it as valuable as we did. So without further delay, we bring you Mandel Crawley. Mandel Crawley, sir, it is such a pleasure to see you this morning. And I have been so excited to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. I have so many questions today. I know so many people in our audience and in our community have been thrilled about you coming on the podcast. First, I just want to ask, how are you and where are you calling in from today? Well, thank you, Ross. It's so good to be here with you. Thanks for having me and and to the community that's listening to this. It's just a privilege to be with you all. I am here in my home office in uh, New Rochelle, New York, which is about 20 miles north of Manhattan. Fabulous. Fabulous. I love the artwork in the background. Who's the boxer on the wall behind you? There's only one that gets on this wall and it's the greatest. I'll leave it at that. You know, it's the greatest. I was going to say, Floyd Merriweather would say it's him, but. <laughs> no, no, I didn't say money. I didn't say money, Mayweather. I said the greatest, you know, which the is. The greatest, the greatest. Ollie, Ollie, I love it. I love it. Indeed. Well, Mandel, I'm super excited to have you today. I want to dive right in because we don't have a lot of time. And I know you and I could do 10 episodes together. And there's so much to talk about. I'd love to start off our conversation with your story. You have an incredibly unique story, in my opinion. Can you just begin by sharing with all of our listeners the journey that you went through to get to where you are today? Yeah, by definition, we all have a, a unique journey narrative, and, and mine is no different in that far from this elegant linear progression uh, through a now three-decade career in finance, I'm a kid from Chicago one of three boys. Uh, Shout out to all the middle kids out there who may be listening to it. You know, the struggle is real when you're when you're the middle child. You know, my parents were high school sweethearts. Sadly, my brothers and I, we lost our parents, you know, relatively early in life. And as a result, you know, we we experienced a lot of trauma early on. But our grandparents, specifically my maternal grandparents, stepped in, filled the gap and became mom and dad for us. And look, you know, we had what I would consider to be a, a relatively normal upbringing, you know, growing up on you know Chicago's West Side, inner city, but it was normal for us. You know, there's a lot of our structural headwinds that have 
hampered a number of our large urban communities uh, for some time. And we know what the drivers of those things, you know, have been. But through what I call this three pillar strategy, church was the opposite of optional. You know, my, my grandparents' Christian faith was ever present in our home. The Boys and Girls Club, which is an organization I am privileged to be on the board of this day, you know, played a critical role in saving our lives, uh, if you will, and of course, education. My grandparents weren't particularly well educated in a formal context, you know, being from, you know, rural Mississippi, but it was the opposite of optional in our household. And that led me to an internship. So I was 17 years old. I didn't have a tremendous amount of exposure to the world of finance. Frankly, I had every intent on being an educator. I thought I'd be a teacher, you know, uh, an incredibly noble profession. And there were so many women in my community that were educators or what have you. And I started this internship at Dean Witter, which is a predecessor firm, you know, that's now part of Morgan Stanley, making $5 an hour, working 20 hours a week, supporting bond traders. And so that's how it began. And I won't bore the audience with all the things that I've done across our ecosystem over the last 30 years. But it was a classic example of where you have someone who maybe has a measure of talent, getting access to an opportunity that left to my own devices, I probably wouldn't have had access to, but getting access to this opportunity opened the world up to me. And I've enjoyed it. I've had a tremendous amount of optionality, career optionality and experiences since that time. You know, I would say, I don't think that the audience would be bored by hearing the vast array of roles that you've played in your ascent at Morgan Stanley. I think it's incredibly interesting that you started at 17. You know, you, you've been there your entire career since. Can you give us like 60 seconds on just the quick career progression you had through Morgan Stanley? Yeah. So I started in sales and trading. Uh, it was a small public finance sales and trading operation. So I spent my first seven years on the small team in Chicago, which the environment I can't I can't overstate how helpful that was for me in the development in the early years. I moved to New York in 1999 as a 24-year-old kid and never left the city of Chicago. And I joined a bigger sales and trading operation at the World Trade Center, obviously at the heart of, in the heart of finance. So 14 years at Morgan Stanley was in sales and trading in fixed income. I was, a, I was the national sales manager for the fixed income distribution team. And then I moved to our broader wealth management business. And I was the national sales manager for our wealth management business, which is part of, you know, is one of the crown jewels, if you will, inside Morgan Stanley right now. Then I had the good fortune of becoming our chief marketing officer. This is like 2014 to 2017. And sort of having the responsibility to nurture and care for you know the world class brand that is Morgan Stanley, the name on the front of the jersey, if you will, and that stretched me a lot because I'm not particularly creative, but I learned a lot in that uh, with that remit. And then the dream job for me, candidly, was running our private wealth management business, which is essentially working with ultra high net worth families to optimize their financial, family, and social capital. Incredibly intellectually stimulating, and you have to have a high degree of competitive urgency in being in that business. You're competing against the Goldman's, the JP's, the Rockefeller's of the world uh, and telling the Morgan Stanley story and giving the why. So I enjoyed that. And then lastly, you know, late in 2020, our CEO asked me to take on a completely different remit and become the chief people officer for Morgan Stanley, to which I struggle with Ross to be candid, being in the business, the private wealth business, you know, sort of sits at the center of the Morgan Stanley ecosystem. And to step out of that, and I didn't have great enough appreciation, at least at the time, 
for the people and culture crisis that we were about to, frankly, that we were in the throes of with COVID happening and then so many other things happening on the social justice front. And so while I don't have the technical chops of running payroll operations and some of the other technical aspects of a human capital function, people and culture, which I know, you know, the scholars of finance is all about this in many respects, I get really jazzed about. And, um, and here we are one year in, I've learned a ton and I'm definitely a better athlete for having taken on, you know, this assignment. It sounds like an absolutely incredible journey, you know, from CMO on private wealth now, chief people officer, as you said, is a CHRO at, at Morgan Stanley. I'm really curious, you know, a lot of our listeners, you have a lot of students listening. You have a lot of early career professionals in IB, PE, asset management. A lot of our listeners are our advisors. They're very, very senior executives, you know, past guests on the show who are still trying to sharpen their craft and, and their, their career. All the roles that you've had, they're very different. You called yourself an athlete. And I think your, your resume and your background clearly indicate that you are. Could you share a little bit more about your decision-making process as you decided to make some of those moves? Like even when you, when you were asked to become chief officer, you know, CHRO, what was the, the calculus you went through in that and other career shifts? Yeah, like I think if I, if I oversimplify it, Ross, the, you've got generalists in terms of talent types. You've got you know, folks who've got a level of versatility and dexterity where they can do a number of different things. You just give them a measure of time to learn the craft. And then ultimately, they'll be able to add alpha, if you will, as it relates to whatever that remit is. And then you've got the specialists who can go three, four derivatives deep in a particular you know, vertical. And candidly, in organizations of all shapes and sizes, you need both. I have been, to state the obvious, the generalist, if you will. And for me, and this isn't something that I've always known, right? But as I've gotten older and as I've come to these proverbial forks in the road, I've developed a framework. And frankly, part of this, I lifted from the great Jim Collins. You know, I, I listened to him on a uh, YouTube once, and he described, you know, three concentric circles, right, as ways to optimizing one's talent, if you will. So there's three things that matter above all else. One is you want to be really interested in the, in the work, right? You want to be really passionate about it. But passion on its own is not enough. The second circle, right, is it has to align to your superpowers, right? Or your particular slice of genius, if you will, right? And this is where you got to be really self-aware and you have to truly understand what your core competency is. And then the third circle, which is critical, is you've got to be able to monetize it. And what I mean by monetizing it is that it's got to be in a, a space that is growing, right? Sheryl Sandberg said in her first book, you know, Lean In, that you know, one of the most important factors of a successful career is you gotta be proximate to growth. And I think she used metaphorically, you gotta board the rocket ship. And I could not agree more. And so you wanna be passionate about it. You wanna make sure that it aligns to your signature strengths, and then you wanna be able to monetize it. So that to me will help your listeners, right? As they're thinking about different opportunities to, so if you think about the world of, of possibilities, use this as your filter. Right. And if you're honest, you'll find yourself at a space where you're now considering opportunities that align to not just what your interests are, but it's actually areas where you can have real impact. As that old adage goes, if you do what you love, right, or if you're working really hard at things that come natural to you, 
right? It won't feel that much like work. And I think that that's true. And the last thing I'll say, partner, is that there's four questions, right? You know, this will give your listeners a lens into when should I move, right? Because that's the other part. Like I just gave you, like, if I'm going to move, what do I want to move to? But when should I move? There are four questions that matter. Am I learning? Am I growing? Am I having impact? Am I happy? Right. There's a lot of questions you can ask, but the four that really matter. Am I learning? Am I growing? Am I having impact? Am I happy? And if you can't say yes to all four of those things, it's probably time to think about doing something else. Thanks. I appreciate it. How do you differentiate learning and growing? What's the distinction there? So you can very much be learning something, right? Conceptually, we learn things every day. But not all learning is created equal, right? Not all learning is necessarily accretive to whatever your personal sort of growth agenda is. And that gets to whatever your your career goals and aspirations ultimately are. So you can be in a job that's intellectually stimulating on some level, but it's not necessarily, you know, stimulation that, that you'll be able to leverage because you're doing a job that doesn't align to your core strengths. Right. So in, I guess in concept, if you want to be really practical about it, it's still accretive because you're learning, but you're not necessarily moving right in the direction, right, from a growth perspective, or it's not putting you in a position where you're putting more proverbial points on the board because you're right. learning a particular thing, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, and I appreciate you pulling in Jim Collins' hedgehog concept from good to great. We use that at SOF when we're hiring people, when we are, are staffing, when we're deciding who takes on what projects. One of my favorite frameworks. I want to shift us into a, another conversation. You were the former chief marketing officer. And one thing that you and I have talked a lot about is the reputation of finance and really the role of capital and capitalism, right, in advancing our society. You know, we've had a number of phone calls now. I've been super, super grateful for our growing friendship and your, your mentorship. And one thing that you've explained to me is that when you were chief marketing officer, you know, you were coming out of a pretty difficult time reputationally for the firm. You really thought through what is the role that finance, that capital, that capitalism plays what is the role that we play in advancing our society? And we've talked a lot about social capitalism or conscious capitalism. I would love to hear your perspective on, you know, the role of capitalism and really to hear your perspective on this notion of social capitalism or conscious capitalism and how capitalism can go beyond the immediate profit, no matter what the consequences, to profitably solving problems and improving society. Yeah, no, this is, um, it's the exact right question, particularly given the spirit of uh, this great organization that you lead. And I just applaud, you know, you and your staff and everyone, all the stakeholders of Scholars of Finance, because it's just hard to, to overstate how important the mission is and how you guys are trying to scale that for, you know, and adding to the talent supply chain, which again, I'm personally excited about. But God, I don't know how much time we have on this podcast because there's so much to unpack here in that question. But I will tell you like anything, like most things, I should say, things can be weaponized for good or for evil, you know, to be really blunt about it. And the challenge that we've historically had in our industry is unfortunately capital in terms of folks who have access to it and how it's ultimately distributed, it's uneven. 
it's beyond the scope of, of obviously what we're going to talk about here today, but clearly some of the output of, of the unevenness is the structural imbalances that we have in terms of income inequality, which I think is, is potentially a powder keg, you know, not just in this country, but globally. I mean, it is a real issue, it is a real problem. So that's in many respects sort of the, the downside, if you will, of capital, because you know, while as a competitive matter, we all believe that you know, if you work really hard, you can be great. You know, Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours, you, you put in the work, you burn the calories, the output is on balance is going to be a positive thing. Or we tell, you know, you feed a man a fish, you feed him for a day, but if you teach him a fish, you could. But in order to do that, you know, I think it was Trevor Noah that said, yeah, but but you know, I, I at least need a fishing rod so that I can actually learn to to, to actually fish. So so there are clearly some things that we can talk about in terms of the challenges. But I think in terms of using finance as a force for good, and that's why I love this organization and what you all are trying to do, is this idea, as you mentioned, going back to my marketing days. You know, Morgan Stanley, we essentially we advise, originate, trade, manage, and distribute capital. We do it for governments, we do it for you know, institutions, and we do it for individuals, and we try to do it with a standard of excellence. And in telling our story to the marketplace, you know, instead of talking about Morgan Stanley proper, we decided to tell stories of clients right, who are doing incredible things to enhance our society. And to me, it's an example of this thing that we all know that to have innovation and to, to enhance our standard of living, you know, it's not enough to just have really good ideas, right? It's not sufficient to say innovation is just all about ideas. It starts there. But in order to scale the idea, right, to the point where it actually makes its way through our society, social ecosystem to where it actually enhances our lives. So if you take Netflix, Apple, Amazon, pick any brand that resonates with you in order for that idea, right, to scale and ultimately have the impact that it's ultimately had, you've needed capital to do that. And one of the things that I'm excited about in terms of just where the world is and clearly the ESG framework, in my view, those three letters will be the theme easily for the next 25 years in our business, if not longer. And I think that there is a higher level of accountability. There's much greater rigor around you know how we're utilizing our capital and what the negative consequences are you know again poor capital utilization etc and there's been a great deal of emphasis rightfully on the e of esg i'm super excited about the emphasis that's now being placed on the s as it relates to it as well clearly i would describe at nine inning game i think we're in the bottom of the first top of the second inning so there's a lot to do on this front but Long-winded way of saying is that I think that there is a, we came out with Capital Creates Change. Initially, it was responsible capitalism. And we all have to raise our game as it relates to, you know, the role that we play and how we are effectively weaponizing capital for good and ensuring that, you know, those who are using it for evil are held to account. I couldn't agree more on every single point that you've made. And obviously I'm agreeing to everything that you're saying with much less experience, right? Still, still pretty young and still a lot, have a lot to learn. The capital creates change. I remember you telling me that about that on our first call. And I, I thought, oh, well, if Morgan Stanley's done with that campaign, maybe scholars of finance can pull that 
as a as a headline for a little while, following your footsteps. <laughs> Keep it going. Keep it going. Absolutely. It's true. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Uh, you need capital. We need you need capital to scale. Right. Great work needs to continue to live on. It's interesting. I was wanting to talk about the role that the private sector holds in driving social change and really how the industry does deploy capital to help grow our communities and improve our communities. I mean, as scholars of finance, we oftentimes talk about the thesis, which is when you look at how the world works, you're trying to find the highest leverage way to make change. Governments are largely beholden to capital. You look at FEC versus McCoochin, FEC versus Citizens United, regulatory capture is increasingly a real thing. And lots of social scientists and political scientists have taught us that in social democracies where the vast majority of the population are overworked, under-resourced, aren't studying the platforms of different candidates, elections become a popularity contest. And in today's day and age, you win the popularity contest by raising the most money for your campaign, right? And of course, you know, having your PR team make you likable and making you the perfect celebrity to garner millions and millions of votes. Well, as you mentioned, that capital earlier is not evenly distributed and any individual or institution now can contribute as much as they'd like to any given candidate. And so when you look, kind of look at the way the government's structured today and our political and, and electoral system is structured, you really have to look to capital as sort of the driving force behind it. Michael Porter, in one of my favorite TED Talks, The Case for Letting Businesses Solve Social Problems, Michael Porter explains that 80% of capital in the world is in the private sector. It's in businesses. And I oftentimes talk to my students about how when you examine public companies and increasingly private companies with the proliferation of early stage private capital, you know, angel investment, VC, VC capital, CEOs are employees who report to boards who serve shareholders and investors, right? And so really that influence seems to be to lie in the hands of the people who hold capital. And Morgan Stanley is a prime example. You know, there are firms in the world that have hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars of assets under management right? That they are stewarding, they are directing, that they are guiding, they are influencing. And so I think you, you hit it you know, on the, the nail on the head, if you will. I'm curious, you talked about ESG. Let's dive into ESG a little bit. With this growing trend, would love to hear a breakdown of your view on ESG in more detail, right? Really, how are you seeing Morgan Stanley and other companies deploy capital in ways that are creating that social change and, and improving people's lives? So before I do that, I mean, I just want to go back on a point that you raised, which I think it's it's really important. There's obviously public sector, private sector, and you think about some of the greatest challenges that we have, some of the greatest headwinds that we have across our society. And I'll just, let's just stay here in the U.S. to make it simple. A lot of the issues that we're grappling with, Frank candidly, are issues because of, you know, at a different time, different era, But if you go back to the founding of this country, it was the result of both the public and private sector working together to constrain certain communities within our our social strata. Right. And so, you know, know, we talk about DNI and creating opportunities for folks. That's been, you know, rightfully a a big area of of focus. And in some ways. Right. and, And I say this to folks all the time when you hear things like, okay, is this you know, affirmative action or reverse racism, et cetera. It's like, in many respects, we are essentially inverting, at least attempting to invert on, on a much smaller scale, the wrongs, right, that were implemented generation after generation, you know, that was basically the architecture was designed both in a through public policy, as well as willing private sector participants. 
I say that just as a, as a point, because I think it's an important point, meaning if it's the public sector and the private sector that help sort of create some of the messes that we have, by definition, it's got to be the public and private sector that actually gets us to a, a better place. I know that's a bit provocative, but I think it's an important point that's worth referencing here. And as it relates to ESG specifically, again, I think that we're just in the very beginning of all of this. I mean, you're starting to see whether it's in the asset management community, and this is not, you know, to be very clear, I mean, ESG or SRI, socially responsible investing, which was the acronym before it, it's not a new thing. I mean, this has been around for several decades even, but it's now caught fire, I'd say, over the last, if not 10 years, surely the last five years, it's become a real, not phenomenon. I mean, it's now sort of codified into the bones of all financial market participants. And there are some like the Black Rocks of the world who I think are ahead of the pack, but I think everybody is now participating. And, and a big reason for that is one, that's where capital flows are headed. Two, you think about the demographics of this country, millennials, Gen Z, et cetera, are clearly pushing institutions to be better in this space. And so you start to think about the stakeholders, employees, investors, et cetera. And so when you really want to see capital start to shift, look at what the stakeholders are ultimately demanding. I think we're starting to see some of that. But again, I think that we're at the vanguard of this, even though we've been talking about it for some time. I think that, you know, let's see where we are in five years and 10 years. And I think that, frankly, we won't even be referring to it as ESG because it truly is going to be in the bones of everything that we do. And it's going to have real implications around investment banks like Morgan Stanley, who we actually facilitate capital for. You know, climate is obviously an easy example. And in what the public sector is doing, the regulatory apparatus is starting to do a much better job of demanding transparency and holding institutions to account. So a lot of words, but in short, to me, it is the thing that will dominate the world of finance for the next couple of decades easy. I'm inspired hearing you talk about it. And there's so many things I want to respond to and react to. Just a couple that I'll share first is that hearing you talk about it, I think the way you you talk about being at the beginning, you know, in the bottom of the first inning at the vanguard, right? Like at the precipice of something great. It's really motivating to hear that and that you really see it as a long-term secular trend. Because I think you hear a lot of the naysayers, you know, kind of number one, they say, well, it's greenwashing. To that, I say, well, if there are people who are just jumping on a bandwagon, that's actually better for the world anyways, right? Just because they're not doing it authentically. JC Deswan, one of our advisors, he's a partner to hedge fund. They were one of the protagonists in the big short, actually. And he teaches the ethics and finance seminar at Princeton and wrote a really great book that we recommend to all of our listeners and students called Seeking Virtue in Finance. And he makes this really, really interesting case for like through which asset classes can you have the greatest impact on society? And he argues VC, private equity, and asset active investing are one, two, and three. And he makes this pretty thoughtful argument about ESG, saying that ESG in the early days, it's not actually making that much impact necessarily on society yet. But when every single player in the market have some set of, whether a shared set of standards or some set of standards of ESG criteria that their investments have to, their companies have to meet, that actually creates downward pressure on cost of capital for businesses that are doing harm to the environment, that aren't helping people, right? That have bad governance. And so what I tell people is maybe there's some greenwashing, but I think most players in the industry are doing it genuinely. 
and really do care. And as soon as all of us are doing it, the better, the sooner everyone does it and it becomes investing, the better, because then it actually achieves its ultimate end. Yeah. And the progress is never, you know, particularly progress on this scale is never easy. So there will always be detractors and there will always be a, a subset of what I'll call market participants or political participants that will be the naysayers and will effectively weaponize, you know, messaging that causes folks to question the validity of, of X or Y, or in this particular case, like we've seen the debate around climate change, is it real, is it not, et cetera. And sometimes it takes crises, unfortunately, to get folks to, to move and to act. So that's always going to be a part of it. But to me, progress here is inevitable. Mm-hmm. It's that the machine is way too big, the importance is way too critical. So there's always going to be, you know, the naysayers. Right, right. I mean, we just have to stay positive and optimistic and very rational, very logical and very open and, and stay at the table in the process, I think, I hope. And I think the, the other thing I wanted to react to is the way you frame it, the way you talk about ESG, it really feels like this tidal shift in society that will be permanent. As you're talking, I'm literally thinking about the 15th Amendment. I'm thinking about voting rights acts. I'm thinking about the birth of the country, the United States, right? Where there is this large controversial debate discussion, there is a groundswell of support for all of us collectively banding together to do something good that the world needs and that we see very clearly. There are going to be some dissenters, people that don't agree, but we continue to drive forward and press forward and set new precedents and create new norms that last and improve the lives of everyone forever. So I I just want to say thank you because I think we talked to a lot of people about ESG, And I think you've put it in terms that feel, I think, like uniquely inspiring and put it in a very long-term systemic perspective, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah, the thing that you just articulated, I think is exactly right. I mean, look, we need stamina. We need will. And we've got to hold that through, you know, in the face of opposition. You know, if you think about how folks talk about wokeism, right, or, you know, cancel culture or whatever it is, right? Like, so the headwinds will be there, right? And we've got to have stamina to keep moving forward. And again, being the optimist, that's not to say it's going to be a straight line because it's these things tend to be more circuitous than not. I'm pretty confident that we're going to get to better. That's fabulous. I'd love to follow this shifting into another conversation really about inequality and then about diversity. You did talk about earlier how capital is unevenly distributed. Would love to hear your thoughts on how income inequality has played a role in shaping the world of finance that we know today. And what role you think finance will play in the future of shaping the American workforce and creating opportunity for everyone? Yeah, I mean, again, this is one of those things that I've got strong views on and we've got limited time. But I I would just tell you, as the country has clearly evolved for the better, and that's not to say that we don't have setbacks along the way. And, And I think about, you know, my life and my experiences versus my grandfather, again, coming from rural Mississippi, being born in 1924 at the heart of, you know, the Jim Crow South. In that context, you know, uh, things have improved. And I think as relates to, as it relates to our laws, if you will, you know, and sort of moving towards a world of greater equality, you mentioned the 15th Amendment, I would have you clearly, we're in a much better place as a country. But when you start to talk about equity, staying with this theme of capital, you want to have better distribution of capital. That is a far harder threshold to cross, right? And that is the caloric burn and the will that's going to be required to get to better is going to be much harder, frankly, than 
it was to even get to a place of equality as just a, a pure legal matter. And that's not just Mandel Crawley. I mean, essentially, Dr. King said the exact same thing in the year before he was assassinated. And so it's at the very heart of our issues, right? You start thinking about you know, what capital means, right? At, at its core, it's about giving you choices. It's about giving you optionality. You know, no one, you know, sort of is born. And again, I, I may be going off track here, partner, but I fundamentally believe we all want the same thing. The difference is, you know, there's a subset of folks who have far greater optionality than others do. And at the end of the day, in the final analysis of all the great work that we're doing, there's a lot of great organizations out there that are committed to pushing, you know, society to better is capital has to play a role in all of that. Because again, as we said earlier, it's the only way that we can actually bring about change at scale. And so when you have the the Mandel Crawleys of the world, not to talk in the third person or any of the other great guests that you've had that are diverse, that maybe a generation or two ago wouldn't have had the opportunities that they've had. While those are great success stories in and of themselves, in order for us to scale that, so that when you're looking at the top of Fortune 500 companies a generation or two from now, you're not talking about a de minimis percentage of folks who were fortunate to get there, but you've got much greater representation and capital is going to have to play a role there. Right, right. That I think is a great segue into a conversation about diversity and inclusion in the industry. Would love to hear your perspective, you know, sitting on the operating committee of one of the largest investment banks, you know, financial firms in the world, being a, you know, a black man yourself in a leadership role, having gone through what you've, you've gone through growing up and some of the, even the systemic factors that so many people of color, women have to face day to day and have had to for generations, much worse, of course, in, in days past. What do you think is currently is driving the lack of, of diversity among firms? How do you think we're pacing on diversity? And in this world where we've pushed so many social issues, especially equity and inclusion to the forefront of our cultural dialogue, we'd love to hear your sort of perspective on how we level the playing field in financial services and, you know, for the end customers at large. Yeah. I mean, look, the data is quite clear. I mean, clearly we still have a lot of work to do on this front. And I appreciate that the uh, we've seen a massive uptick in messaging and intent on the part of, of the private sector to get to better. And I think that that is you know, net positive, sure. And clearly 2020 was a watershed moment you know, for not just here in the US, but globally. And, and, and again, on a net basis, I think that again, there's, it's been additive, but the data is the data. And you, know, you can look at gender level at an ethnicity level. Uh, the fact of the matter is we still have far too few folks represented at the top of, of firms and in boardrooms or in key executive roles across, you know, literally every sector, right? So there's only one or two explanations for that. Either the talent, right, from these communities aren't good enough, or it's a reflection of the structural oppression and the structural limitations that have existed since the beginning. And we, of course, know that it's the latter of the two. And so I'm under no false illusions that this is something that's going to be solved in a year or two or 10, right? If it's taken you know, centuries in the making to get to this particular point where folks truly didn't have the opportunity to get educated or didn't have the opportunity to work in, in this industry or that industry, et cetera, it is going to take us time. And so the thing that I'm most proud of, and I'll just speak for my firm, 
is while the, the inconvenient truth of the math problem, right, will exist for some time, there are things, there are steps that we can take to ensure that every employee that walks the halls of Morgan Stanley can feel like they belong there. That's something that you can actually solve for much sooner. And that's part of what you are and your leadership team are passing on to the participants of your great organization in terms of just moral leadership and, and having this, you know, having a higher degree of an emotional intelligence with who you work with, who you are, your partners are, being a great partner. So it's not just about how you treat customers, how you treat your, your colleagues or what have you and everything else that comes with the standards that you guys are, are implementing. But at Morgan Stanley, I mean, that's something that we have been, you know, incredibly deliberate around is making sure that everybody feels that they can bring their authentic self. We're not perfect. There's no finish line around this work. And candidly, this is not something that's unique to Morgan Stanley. I know that there's a lot of institutions that are really focused on getting this to a better place. And what do we have to do? It's all of the above, right? There's a number of levers, right, that you have to pull to roll the pie. And that's the one thing that I'd love to see the, the finance community continue to focus on is it's not about how can Morgan Stanley take the black or Hispanic or women talent out of Goldman Sachs. That doesn't solve the problem. We need to grow the pie. And so we need the, the talented folks that are part of organizations like Scholars of Finance to join the fight as we grow that population, right? And as they are successful, that's how you get this multiplier effect. And candidly, that's going to happen. Thanks for, for sharing. And I, I appreciate the, I wouldn't say the optimistic view, I'd call it, it sounds like a pragmatic, yeah. optimistic view. To all of our listeners, they will say, you know, we're excited to announce soon that Morgan Stanley is becoming a founding partner of Scholars of Finance. So to any of our students listening, would highly encourage you to apply to Morgan Stanley and, and yes. there'll be a lot on the front. There'll be, <laughs> there'll be a lot uh, in the future uh, on that. We're super thrilled about the partnership that's coming here in 2022. But I think what you just said segues into my final question. And then I want to do a couple rapid fire questions for you as we wrap up on time. You know, you're coming up on 30 years at Morgan Stanley. You've moved across multiple divisions of the firm. What changes have you seen in the office over the last 30 years in terms of diversity? And if we look at the situation as pragmatic optimists, can you expand a little bit more on what the future of finance looks like for underrepresented communities as that pie grows? Yeah, so we've evolved. You know, if you think about Morgan Stanley's an 86-year-old institution, and, you know, for the first 50 years, uh, it was a private partnership. And if you look at what that partnership looked like, no one in that photo looked like me. So that's circa 1986 is when Morgan Stanley went public. Fast forward to today, we've got much better, much greater representation, obviously off of a very low bar. It was a very low bar to clear, but we're a much more diverse firm. In fact, a third of our employees, we have 76,000 employees, are ethnically diverse, right? So we are progressing along the path. It never feels like it's moving fast enough, but we are absolutely moving in the right direction. And again, I think about just the demographic more broadly, and even our majority colleagues who are millennial, Gen Z, et cetera. I mean, just a far more progressive perspective, right, that I think will turbocharge our efforts because they are demanding. That's the thing that, that's really important here is that it's not just black and brown folks that are saying we need greater representation. It's true, you know, call them allies, if you will, but true partners who are saying that, no, I want to work for a firm that embraces these things. So I am optimistic for that uh, reason. And that's been my experience as I've grown in my career at Morgan Stanley. And, you know, frankly, being on the 
firm's operating committee. I mean, that obviously that, that brings with it a, a level of responsibility that I have to do my part, which I, I gladly step into that. We've got other folks on the OPCO who are diverse and, again, doing a great job of, of being ambassadors and representative of the firm that we aspire to be. But ultimately, as my goal is to find the talent that's going to basically go much further than I've gone inside the walls. Not that I'm done yet, but go much further than you know what I've been able to do. And that's how this thing is supposed to work. I met with a mentor of mine a couple of weeks ago for lunch who ran investment banking at a competitive firm. And he's been a key champion for me personally. And he genuinely roots for me. He roots for me to get to even higher level than where he got. And that's how this thing is ultimately supposed to work. I'm sorry for you know going on too long there, partner. I don't think you went on too long at all. Can I hit you with three rapid fire questions? Of course. All right. Real quick, right off the top of your head, whatever comes to mind, one or two of the most influential books you've ever read that our audience might enjoy or might benefit from reading. Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins in terms of just mental toughness is one. The other is Essentialism by Greg McEwen doing The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. Those are two books that immediately come to mind. Atomic Habits by James Clear is another one that I think would be a great read. I know I cheated there a little bit. No, we got more than we bargained for. This is great. All right. Three great book recommendations. Next rapid fire question. Key advice you'd offer for young people entering the industry, trying to enter the industry who want to follow in your footsteps, especially for our students from underrepresented backgrounds. How can these young people get in the door and succeed early on in their careers? Yeah, I think number one, you'll be appropriately edgy in managing your career. No one's ever going to care about your career as much as you do. And then I'd say you need three things. One is a high degree of self-confidence. That's not cockiness, but that's confidence, being really prepared and and just appreciating who you are and what you bring to the table. So high degree of self-confidence. Two, embrace the insecurity. We all have it, right? We don't project it. You, You never see that on anyone's social media feed. You never see anybody talking about the insecurities on Instagram, but we all have it, right? Embrace it. It's part of the process, right? You know, the the J curve, as I like to call it, you step into a new job, a new role. You feel like you go, you're going backwards before you actually, you know, sort of stabilize and start to add value. So embrace the insecurity. And then third, which is critical, impulse control. Be very thoughtful and planful in your decision-making. Try to be as less emotional as you can. So high degree of self-confidence, embrace insecurity, and impulse control. Excellent advice. I don't know if I shared this with you before, but in high school, I was pursuing a career as a professional boxer. So I appreciate your, your poster even more so. But I will say, now I tell my students, that was the manifestation of a young man trying to cover up a lot of insecurities, trying to act confident because he was insecure. There are better ways than getting your face bashed in. So I'm glad my parents talked me out of that one when I was a kid. Last rapid fire question for you. You're incredibly busy. You're on the operating committee of Morgan Stanley. And you've been so generous with your time at Scholars of Finance. You know, our mutual friend, one of our advisors, Scott Harrison, connected us initially. Another one of our mutual friends, Troy Greep, over at Morgan Stanley, you know, strongly recommended that we connect as well. Peter Aquaboa, one of your teammates, you know, has really been uh, helping drive a relationship at Morgan Stanley along with you. You and I have connected. We've had a number of phone calls. You've been generous with your time, your wisdom, your advice, your encouragement. And even on this call, you've spoken so highly about Scholars of Finance. 
I would love to know, you know, in that early introduction, what stood out to you about SOF's vision and mission and why do you root for scholars of finance? Why are you rooting for us? Well, first, like most, when you're thinking about investing, you start with the founder CEO, right? Because that sets the tone. And obviously, uh, I'll embarrass you here a little bit, but spending time with you and, and who you are and your reputation and, and getting to know you, you have not disappointed. So in many ways, you set the tone. There's a lot of things that you could be doing, given your talents, the fact that you're choosing to do this, again, following your heart. Clearly, your heart was dislocated to the point where you decided to lean into this and make this your life's work. So that resonates with me. So that's one. Two, last I checked, Maureen Stanley is an active participant in the talent marketplace. And the talent that's being cultivated here is a pipeline, right, for firms like mine. So away from my own personal passion and interest, you know, just as a commercial matter, candidly, being proximate to organizations that are being intentional about talking about, you know, how important moral leadership is, how important integrity is, how important responsible capitalism is. And that's, these are virtues that we hold dear at my firm. And that's not to say that we don't have the bad actor or two from time to time. Again, it's a big 76,000 people, 39 countries, bad things happen. But the opportunity to get close to talent that is immersed in these teachings and these principles, you know, how could that not resonate? And then, of course, there's a DNI element to this as well. Again, so it's not just, you know, world-class talent, but it's also diverse talent. And again, going back to the things that we're trying to do at my firm, this is obviously an addressable audience that, that's very attractive to us as well. So we, I root for you for those reasons. And, you know, I can say, you know, that you set the tone. Thanks, Mandel. You were right. I do feel a little bit embarrassed, but I'll take the compliment. I'm very grateful. That means a lot coming from you. So humbled by that. And all of us as scholars of finance are incredibly grateful for your leadership, your mentorship, your support, and for all of the work that the firm is doing and will continue to grow in doing with us over the next several years. So I know we're at time. Just want to say thank you so much for your time today. Hope you have an amazing rest of your weekend. Hope to have you on the podcast again soon. I'd love to do it. And I, I leave you the group with uh, my favorite quote, no, two quotes. One is, Ross, you embody this. Light yourself on fire with enthusiasm. People will come from miles and miles away to watch you burn. So that's one. And then two is, the dream is free, but the hustle is sold separately. Right? The dream is free, the hustle is sold separately. And I think that that's true. We got a lot of dreamers. I'm sure that's a part of this organization. In the final analysis to get to, to where you want to go, you're going to have to grind. And I know everybody gets that. So thanks for having me, partner. I really enjoyed this. And uh, blessings to you, your fiance, and your family. Thanks, Mandel. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.